we shift from one series to another. And I, we were in that last series for 12 weeks looking at what it means to be resurrection people. And, and I, man, I just was loving that. I just could have continued on that route for quite some time. But we do need to sometimes shift our direction and our focus. And so we're going to do that starting this morning back on uh, Father's Day here at the church. You maybe remember this. A lot of my family invaded that day from all over the place, and we celebrated my parents' 65th wedding anniversary. And we had a great day. We ate together. We laughed together. Uh, told jokes. We, you know, somebody hit somebody's shoes, and they all blamed me, of course, and I didn't do it, but I got the reputation for doing that kind of thing. You know, we had a great day together. And one of the things we did was we got in here, and we sat around in here, and uh, there were about 30-some of us, I guess, and we sat around here, and we just... Uh, sang our favorite hymns and choruses and and it was an an amazing time singing together um and and i just thought about that as i was getting into this series we're going to talk about worship and worship's an interesting topic worship sums up it's it, it stirs up something different in all of our minds when we think of what worship is some people when they think of worship they think of connecting with god out in nature potentially and that's what worship is to them others maybe think of architecture or art uh jenna and eve just went over to ireland and got to tour some great cathedrals over there with the grand haven orchestra and some people that's what they think of when they think of worship others uh, when they think of worship they think of a life of moral excellence and dedicated service others think of worship and they think of this morning singing a song offering a prayer uh, reading some scripture and gathering for a service like this and the question is what really is worship in if we boil it all down what does worship really look like in fact if we asked all of us this morning what is worship to me, I think we all could put a different word in that blank, right? The, the power of worship and, and, and what is worship to me? That's the personal question. What is, or what does worship mean to me in one word? If I could just use one word and say this is what worship is to me, and I think we would have a variety of answers this morning. When I think back to that day in June when we gathered and we, we worshiped here as a family, what made that so special It's not just the songs we were singing, but it's that those songs we were singing reflected uh, the testimony of of our our belief that God is a faithful God, and then at the same time, our response to Him and our, you know, determination that we want to live a life of response to God. I think about that when you think about uh, this idea, worship is powerful when it is a two-way testimonial. When we sing songs that declare God is a good God, He's a faithful God, He's a holy God, He's he's our defender, and at the same time when our worship is reflecting our response back to Him, that we love Him. That, that as we sang at that, la- that last song, I love you, Lord, I lift my voice. How can I not lift my voice to the one who is such an incredible God? And that's true of what happens here each week as we gather for worship. So we're starting this new series today, The Power of Worship. We'll be on this for really towards the end of summer. We're going to talk about worship for uh, several few Sundays. And today specifically, we're going to be in Psalm chapter one. 47. This series, uh, the idea, live in the moment, transform today. It's the power of worship and what worship can do in our life. Um, if we could just get a handle on this issue of worship, it would really impact the issues we face and the things that we struggle with on a day-to-day basis. It would. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said this,
this, we are worship, what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Think about that. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Someone said it this way. In other, word, uh, other words, our deities shape our identities. And I'm always talking here, about Our identity is in Christ. That's who I am. My identity is shaped by Christ. But it's true. Whatever we worship, our deities will shape our identities. Whatever I worship will shape, really, who I am in a practical sense. But we know we are the sons and daughters of God and that He is our identity. So, um, you know, the real question here, and I think I've got some of this uh, out of line on the screen, so I'll jump ahead here. The real question here, though, is not if we worship. The question is, what do we worship? And then how do we worship? That's the real question. Um, and so we all worship something or someone. So it's not the question is if I worship, it's really what am I worshiping? The bottom line is we were, we were created to worship our Creator. And, and, and anything less than that, a life that is anything less than that will result in a life that is less than fulfilled. Anytime my life does anything less than worship my Creator, it'll be a life that is less than fulfilled. So we're in, we're in Psalm 147 today. This is the psalm we're going to kind of walk through the first Really, just the first 11 verses, I couldn't even make it through the entire psalm. But uh, Psalm 147, and here's kind of the context of, of this psalm. Actually, Psalms 146 to 150 kind of fit in this context. It's when the Israelites are leaving Babylon. They've been in Babylonian captivity for 70 years, seven decades. And uh, they're now going home. They're returning home to rebuild. Remember the, the walls, the fortified walls had been torn down. The glori glorious temple was in, disar in, in disarray and destruction. And they're going home to rebuild. And so it's determined by some that Haggai and Zechariah actually write this psalm um, as they're leaving Babylon and they're heading home. Now one thing that will help us in reading this psalm and any psalm, I just got to stress this a little bit here, is always know when we are reading someone else's mail. Because we are, in essence, this is written by Jews, written to Jews, written under, we would call the covenant, the Old Testament covenant of law. So when we read the psalms, you got to be a little careful how you apply some things because they're not written directly to us. In fact, that's really the key here. All Scripture is for us, but not all Scripture is directly to us. And so there are some things that were written to the Jewish people and they have some literal applications that maybe don't necessarily apply to us. And that will be important as we kind of glance through this psalm. And so we're going to start in verse 1. And we're going to start here. And this is the verse that Cindy led the service with this morning. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. What a great verse. It's kind of like the call to worship of this entire psalm. Here's a few other translations, how they put it. How delightful and how right, says the New Living Translation. For it is pleasant and praise is comely, says the King James Translation. Comely meaning suitable or beautiful. How beautiful is our praise? Uh, the, the New American Standard Bible says, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. It's becoming of a believer to sing songs of worship to God. And for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. That is our translation that we primarily use the English Standard Version. And you kind of get the idea that, you know, if, if you remember in Colossians, Paul talks about putting on clothes. 
He talks about God's characteristics are like putting on an outfit and getting dressed in the morning. And that's kind of what this is like. Worship is, is fitting. It's like a good outfit. It looks good on us. We talked in this last series about being new creations in Christ who have been given new hearts. And we have now new desires. We actually desire the things of God. And we actually have the desire to worship God. Praise and worship should just be natural for us. It's our natural default position. When we sin, and that's when we're unhappy. That's when we regret those things because we have a new heart. We are new creations in Christ. So in this psalm today, we're going to see two ways we can express our worship. Two simple ways we can express our worship. And we're going to go to verses 2 through 6. Start there. Again, worship is fitting or it is becoming of a Christian. It is, it is what looks good on us as believers. It looks really good when we worship and when we sing a song. But again, it's more than just singing a song, and we're going to talk about that this morning. We'll see exactly where does, where does the songs we sing, where, where does that fit into the true genuine worship we need to offer God? Two ways we can express our worship then of God, verses 2 through 6 will tell us this. First of all, we, uh, we can trust in God's character. I express my worship of God when I trust in God's character. And what we see in these first six verses really are, are just some examples of why we can trust God's character. Really, why can we trust God's character and uh, pretty beautiful. Let's read the verses here. Verse uh, 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble and casts the wicked to the ground. And there are at least five things in there that we can pull out that show us why we can trust in the character of God. I Okay, so we talk about this all the time, right? Worship is more than just singing a song or offering a prayer or claiming some scripture. Yes, those are specific ways we can worship God, but worship is more than that. Worship is a lifestyle. It is a lifestyle of trust. And here's how our big idea today says it. This is the big idea behind this whole message. Just, just take this home with you. Genuine worship is a life that doesn't just sing about the character of God but a life that actually trusts in the character of God. See the difference there? I can stand up here and sing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or I can trust that, no, He is a holy God. He is a just God. He's a righteous God. I can, I, I, I can trust that He is my holiness and my righteousness because of the cross. Because I'm a new creation, I can trust those things. And so that's the big idea today. Genuine worship doesn't just sing about the character of God. It is a life that actually trusts in the character of God. And we see in these verses that he can be trusted and the benefits for trusting him. Why can we trust him? Well, first we see that God has a history. It says the Lord builds, <coughs> excuse me, the Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. Think about that. Think about the history God has. He has this incredible incredible <clears throat> history. I said a moment ago we need to factor in that we are reading someone else's mail. And we do <clears throat> need to be aware of that, that we are reading someone else's mail. But then we can go to the other extreme, and some people do, and they think, well, the Old Testament was just written for other people, and it's, it has no value to me. 
That is so incredibly far from the truth. There is so much value in the Old Testament and we need to be aware of that. One of the ways it's valuable to us, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) get that cleared out of there. Um, It is valuable to us because it shows us the, the extreme mercy and faithfulness of God to his people Israel. We look through the Old Testament, we just see this God that is incredibly merciful and incredibly faithful, a God who created us and never looked back, a God who when we went astray, when we, when we sinned against him, he pursued us uh, with a violent passion all the way to the cross. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see the incredible uh, story of God, his grace and his mercy and his love rooted in the Old Testament, reinforced in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament helps us understand the New Testament. It helps us understand when Christ comes and gives his life on the cross exactly why he is doing that. So we learn a lot from the Old Testament. We learn that we can trust God because he has a history of defending and fighting for his people. He has a history of being faithful even when we aren't, and he has a history of always keeping his word. You know, you ever hire somebody like a babysitter, maybe to come watch your kids, or you're looking for some kid, some kid to do your lawn, and so yeah, you ask for references, right? Any boss knows what this is like. You ask for references, and then you, you kind of call and check out those references. Well, if you were going to sit down and you were going to start, you know, interviewing different gods and say, okay, I'm going to decide which God's going to be my God, and you started interviewing them, there is no God that has a resume like our God, like Yahweh. There is no God that can compare to him, and all you have to do is look at his, at his references that are scattered throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament. He is a, an amazing God. Uh, we can trust God because God has a history, because God sees us personally. He talks in here about all these stars, right? He determines the number of stars and he gives to all of them their names. And just, just think about this. What's the significance of stars is that stars are to represent people. The implication is if God knows all the names of all these stars out there, well, he can know your name as well. You're more important than a star. You are a people. You know how many stars are, are estimated to be? This will blow your mind. There are 10 billion trillion estimated stars. And God knows the name of all those stars. It's estimated there are 7.7 billion people on the earth. And you know when God looks down at the earth, he doesn't see 7.7 billion people. He doesn't see Americans and Russians and Germans. And you know what he sees? He sees you. And he sees me. And he sees us as individuals. That's the implication. And we can trust this God because he is a God who can identify us personally. On the more amusing side, this comes from the Live Science website. This speaks for itself. Here's what Live Science says. Though humans have named a few constellations of stars from Orion to the Big Dipper, in reality, there are many more stars in the universe than could ever be given names. Isn't that just beautiful? We know we have a creator who knows the names of all 10 billion trillion stars in the universe. And if that blows your mind, that's what this God should do. He should blow your 
mind. If you ever simply feel like a number, know that you are not a number. Yes, you're not a number to God. Maybe you're a number to the government. You got a social security number. Maybe you're a number at work. You got an employee ID number. Maybe you go to the DMV and you wait in line and you take a number. But with God, you are not a number. I love the old joke, you know, the, there's three guys standing there in the prison and the, one of the guards comes up with his billy club and whaps one of them over the head and then does a double take and says, oops, sorry, wrong number. But we're not a number to God. We're not a number to God. God knows us personally and then God knows us intimately. He goes on to talk about how he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And let me just tell you today, God knows the hurts and the scars in your life. He knows your doubts and your fears and your worries. He knows your regrets and your guilt and your shame. He knows your struggles, your temptations and your sin. He knows your failures, your hurts and your pain. He knows the burdens and the secrets that you hide buried within that nobody else knows about but him. And the reality is, and we said it again last week, we can say it all the time, no one knows you better than God and no one loves you more than God. Crazy as that might be. Here's one way to consider it. We are a body, soul, and spirit, right? So we could say the greatest need of our body is proper diet, exercise, and rest. Those are the needs of our body. The needs of our spirit are to be made alive in Christ, our pneuma, our spirit, it's what died in the Garden of Eden when we sinned. We need to be, be, be quickened by the Spirit, made spiritually alive in Christ. What's the most important need, though, of our soul, of our, of, of our psyche, of our psychology? What's our most important need? To be known and loved. And studies have shown this over and over and over again. Here is how Tim Keller says it. Tim Keller says this, To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. We need to be known and loved. And we talked in this last series about, you know, knowing God a little bit. We, that kind of came up at the end of that series about knowing God. And we can talk about knowing God, but think about this. Think about the fact that God wanted to know you. Think about how desperately God wanted to know you. Think about the fact that our sin separated us from God and that it, we lost our identity in Him. And he wanted to know us. And think of the great links that he went to to get to know you. He went to the cross. He went all the way to the cross just so that he could know you. So he could know us in our sin and our brokenness to rescue us and redeem us. Think about this. We have, you know, God can identify us. You know, we, you, know you wanna, for instance, you wanna cash a check, you gotta show your identification, right? Or if you, uh, you wanna, get a visa and fly somewhere you got to have your identification you want to drive a car you got to have your identification so we have our identification the things that identify us and the reality is God can identify us that's true but you know what God did something something far greater than that the relationship God wanted with you and me included an intimacy where he could where he could more than simply identify you but he could identify with you think about that this morning 
God can't only identify you. He can't only pick you out of the crowd and say, well, you know, there's Becky or there's Ken or, you know, there's Nathan. But he can identify with you. It tells us here, what does it say in verse 3 again? God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And the implications of that verse on this side of the cross are far greater because on the cross he went there and he took on your brokenness and he took on your pain. And God does more than just identify you, he identifies with you. Isn't that so simply amazing? Do you see why you can put your trust in God, if you're going to interview gods and say, I'm trying to choose who's going to be my God, I can tell you who I would serve, who I would follow, who I would rely on, and who I would obey. No one comes close to Christ. He has a history that proves himself. He knows us intimately and personally, and then it tells us as well we can trust him because God is this this infinite God. He's a character that is infinite. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Two things in that verse that just jump out. Abundant in power, that simply means abundant means more than enough. God has more than enough power. And when you think about what God has to do, that says a lot. God has more than enough power to save anybody who comes to him in genuine faith. God has more than enough power to defeat sin, death, and hell, to resurrect from the grave. God has more than enough power to not only create the world, but sustain the world, the entire world, and all of its inhabitants. Think about that. He has more than enough power. And if he has that kind of power, he has more than enough power to help you manage the affairs of your simple life. You see, genuine worship is a life that doesn't just sing about the character of God. It is a life that actually trusts in the character of God that says, he is more than enough for me. He's, a more, he's more than enough for my family. He's more than enough in my struggles. He's more than enough in my battles. And then finally, it says here, beyond measure in this verse, which simply means that his understanding is beyond measure. Basically, just think about that. We will spend, here's that measure. We will spend eternity getting to know an infinite God, a God who is beyond measure. His love is beyond measure. His character is beyond measure. And that statement right there just kind of throws you for a loop when you look at it. To spend eternity forever getting to know an infinite God that should make your mind kind of snap, we will spend eternity and never, ever, ever discover the fullness of who God is. And he has to be that kind of God because he knows the name of 10 billion trillion stars. That's the God that we worship. That is the God that we serve. And then finally, and here we see that he is the God of justice. We can trust him because the Lord lifts up the humble and he casts the wicked to the ground. And if you ever desire justice in this world, and we see a world full of injustice, if you desire justice, God's the one who can give true justice. He is the holy one who can bring and exact justice in this world. In fact, it says he lifts up the humble. And the reality is, you know, lifting up the humble, humility, that's a judgment of the heart. I can't make, I cannot look at anybody here and make a judgment whether you truly are a humble person. But God can, right? The one who can penetrate, his word can penetrate between our soul and our spirit. He can look into us and say, that man is truly humble. That man is truly proud. God knows what is in our 
heart. So how do we express our worship today? Number one, or first point, we express our worship when we simply trust in the character of God and it's quite the character that is worth trusting. Second way that we can trust God, or second way that we can worship God, excuse me, And we see this in verses 7 through 9. Let's read on. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God with the lyre. He covers the heaven with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and the young ravens that cry. Here's the simple reality. Um, We can appreciate God's blessings. I I can express my worship as I appreciate God's blessings. And let me tell you, God is a good, good Father who pours out tremendous blessings. One of the simplest forms of worship is when I appreciate who God is and what He has done for me. Let's glance through here and see some of these things. Now, we should be thankful for the rain. It talks about the rain in here. And I got to thinking about, it's it's like rain is almost an illustration that He uses to, to describe some of His blessings. Let's consider what His blessings look like through the rain. Okay, first of all, think about this. Where does rain come from? Where does rain come from? What? Where does rain come from? Okay, it comes from above. <laughs> it, it does come from the clouds, but the clouds are above us. So the, the, you know, the rain comes from above. It reminds me of this verse in uh, James chapter 1. The rain comes from above. Here's what it says, James 1. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and per- every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. So, the rain comes from above. And this verse here tells us that all of our blessings, every good thing in life comes from what? From above, from this good, good, good Father. Note what it also says there in verse 16. It says, do not be deceived. Why does it say that? Because it is so easy to lose sight of where our blessings come from. It's so easy to think, well, I deserve this blessing. Or I earned this, or I worked really hard, or, or this is the result of my own <clears throat> effort. And the Bible tells us repeatedly, every good gift comes from above. Now, I'm not saying we can't work hard or shouldn't work hard and earn anything. I'm not saying that, but here's the implication. Those two hands that you have, that you use to do that work, that mind that, uh, that thinks and allows you to produce those thoughts. Our faculties, our instruments that allow us to earn a living, they all come from where? They come from God. Every good, good gift is traced back to the Father of lights who is unchanging. And we need to know that. So every good and perfect gift comes from above. Let me, let me prove this to you though, okay? Somebody, somebody tell me, <clears throat> think with me here a minute. Somebody tell me, what's the greatest gift you ever received? Okay, very good, that's right. <clears throat> that's the answer, so. Jesus is the greatest gift we ever received. Where did Jesus come from? Came from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. We look at this illustration of, of the rain and, and we see in the Bible even pictures of God turning off the rain and turning on the rain at will. Here's a second way we can see this illustration. We think about our greatest gift, Jesus coming from above. Here's the second thing we can learn is that these are the gifts we take for granted. 
Think about it. Do you take the rain for granted? When is the last time we thanked God for the rain? The last time the rain ended a drought, right? The last time we didn't get rain for a long time and then it rained and then we said, thank you, Lord, for the rain. The rain that we just take for granted virtually all the time. The rain that is a symbol of God's incredible blessing. In fact, even worse, oftentimes we don't just take the rain for granted, we complain about it. We complain about God's blessings, right? Don't we do that? Rain's on the wrong day, rain's on our party or our picnic, you know, rain's too much. We complain about God's blessings. Remember Psalms 147.1, praise the Lord for it is good to sing and sing praises to our God for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. Let me just tell you this, that gratitude looks really good on the believer but not complaining. Gratitude looks good on a believer, but not complaining. And yet, we, look, we can look at the rain and we can think about how we can sometimes complain, even about God's blessings, if we think God's blessing is too much. Hey, Lord, okay, I've got enough blessing here for a while, you can turn the rain off. Sometimes that is kind of our attitude. You know what a storm does? Think about this. You get a storm, you get flooded out, you know what a storm can do? is that a storm can come in, it can wipe out some of those physical things that we think are blessings and that it makes us focus on what our true blessings are, right? Our family, our health, our safety, Jesus, right? It just takes away, oh yeah, my TV's not that big of a blessing, right? Where all those things that we think are so important that that a flood can destroy. It's amazing how God's blessings, it's, it's all our perspective of how we look at them. And then, so we just see, and then thirdly, there is this, this, this simple idea that we can look at the rain and see the abundance of God's blessings, that the rain comes in an abundance and God blesses us abundantly. God just pours out his blessings. So, but we can be thankful for some other things. Go back to verse two. I'll show you a couple other things in the, in the text here. Verse two, we, we should be thankful that God helps us clean up our messes. I go back to verse 2, and here's what it said back in verse 2. It says, um, the Lord rebuilds Jerusalem. And that's really a powerful literal statement because Jerusalem, the fortified walls were in ruin. This glorious temple that Solomon had built back in, you know, Chronicles, it was in disarray and destruction. It needed repaired and rebuilt, and God was going to help Israel do just that. They're coming out of captivity, and they're going to go home, and they're going to rebuild and restore all that was a mess. And God does that for us. He comes along and helps us that. He helps us clean up our financial, our relational, our emotional, yes, even our spiritual messes that we make in life. Even those things, when life seems hopeless, God comes along and helps us clean up our messes. Maybe you've heard of Dave Ramsey on the radio. He wrote the Total Money Makeover and Financial Peace. And Dave Ramsey talks about this principle that people come, people come and they want to start to clean up their financial mess they want to start getting out of debt and get get some things in order and he says he sees a pattern that when people really get after their debt and when people really start to be better stewards of their money invariably he always sees the same thing god comes along and that person will just they'll get a a raise at work they'll start getting more income god comes along and helps them clean up their messes god does that for us He's a faithful God that we can trust and we can be grateful that he helps us clean up the messes we make in our relationships, in our emotions, in our spiritual walk. 
He's a great God. And then we can be thankful that God always keeps His promises as well. It says there in, uh, in verse 2, says this in verse 2, um, Jumping ahead of myself. He says this in verse 2. He gathers Israel's exiled people. And that's simply an example of him keeping his promises and being faithful to his word. In present tense, as he was doing that at that time, bringing them out of, out of Babylon, out of captivity and back home. But this is a shout out. This, this, this reality, this is a shout out. This, this idea that he will gather Israel's exiled people is a shout out to a future time when he will bring all of Israel back to Jerusalem. They will be this great nation. Christ will sit on this throne ruling over the entire world. It's gonna be a, a great day. And that's the reality. There's the shout out. God always keeps his promises. He did it to Israel. He will do it for Israel. He will do it for you and me as well. He will keep his promises to us. We need to know that. He will be a faithful God. We have evidence. We have all kinds of evidence that God does keep his promises. For instance, there's a rainbow in the sky. There's a cross on the hill. There's a tomb that lies empty. There's a Bible we hold in our hands that has been preserved for thousands of years. And God is simply saying, I will be faithful. Now consider with me a moment the greatest promise that God made to us. The greatest promise was what? Jesus. That's the, the Messiah, Jesus. I want to take you to a passage here in the, the book of Hebrews. I want to look at a passage. I want you to see something about God's incredible faithfulness and what it looks like. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you, and thus Abraham having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For when God made a promise, <clears throat> excuse me, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is uh, final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters the, into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we know we read Psalm 147. We know it's written to the Jewish people, right? And God's bringing them and promising to bring them out of exile one day and, and to be this great nation. Do you know why God chose Israel to be this great nation? Do you understand why he chose them? He chose them primarily for one reason, because they would be the royal lineage of the Messiah. They would be the ones who, who Christ would come through their descendants and through their line, and, and one day Christ would go to the cross, offer himself as a sacrifice, rise from the grave, and then even beyond that, one day he will sit on the throne and rule everything and everyone for all of eternity. So that's why God started this, this founded this nation of Israel, because they were the ones to usher in the Messiah. Now, so, um, question here. The, the question I have here, when, when we think about this reality and this, this promise, this contract, this covenant that, that God made, okay? God made a co who, do, who did God make a covenant with? I want to show you something. Who did God make a covenant with? 
It's Israel. Okay, some might say Israel. Huh? Abraham. And uh, it's, it's pretty interesting to stop and think about ultimately who God made, because I've read this before and I've never really thought about this, but here's the truth. God made a covenant with himself. We just read it in the text. We just read it for when God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. For people swear by something greater than themselves. You see it? Whenever we make a contract with somebody, the idea is that there's two people and we're both going to keep our word. The bank gives me money to buy a house. They're going to give me the money and they believe that I'm going to pay that back over the next 15 or 20 or 30 years. And, it, and if, if there's two people and one person thinks the other won't keep up their end of the deal, there's no contract, there's no covenant, there's no guarantee, there's no promise. And so here's the ultimate truth. Yeah, we say that God made a covenant with Abraham or with Israel or with Moses on Mount Sinai. Ultimately, God made a covenant with himself. Because God said, you know what, I'm, I can't, there's nobody greater that I can depend on or I can promise other than myself. So he promised himself that he would raise up the Jews, send a Messiah to come die on the cross and to rescue us from our sins. He ultimately made a covenant with himself. That's the beauty of it. That is how much we can trust this God. Because Abraham... Moses, the Israelites, you and me, we could have never held up our end of the deal. He could have never made a covenant with us that relied on our faithfulness. He is the only one because it is impossible for him to lie. You know what that is, my friends? That is grace. That is pure grace. It has always been grace. Even when it was law in the Old Testament, it was grace. It was God's grace. It was undeserved grace. It was un deserved grace and we can trust in what God says because God has guaranteed it by his own word and the promise that he made to himself so what did we learn this morning let's stop and think what we learned this morning before we get into a little bit of application here we learned that uh, well what are some things we learned genuine worship is a life that doesn't just sing about the character of God but a life that actually trusts in the character of God. And how do we worship God? We worship God when we trust in his character. And we saw that, that God has a, indeed, he has a history, that God has a history and that he knows us, he knows us both personally and he knows us intimately and he is an infinite God and he is a just God. And for all of these reasons, we can trust God. We worship him by trusting him and we see right here how we and why we can trust him. And then we also learn, number two, that we can appreciate God's blessings and that God's blessings are immense. And we saw those blessings in the rain and in the fact that God comes along and helps us clean up our messes and that God is faithful and God always keeps his word. I want to help us apply this today, though. We're going to go to verses 10 and 11 to close this message out and to bring in some application. And it says this in verses 10 and 11, His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you hear it in there? Do you know what God is saying in there that is so beautiful and amazing to you and me? And yes, God loves it when we sing. He loves to hear us gather and sing those songs like we did today. But 
eh, not so much if they're just hollow, empty words. But when they're a reflection of our own life, of, of our own testimony of trust in him, God loves to hear those songs. So here's what this verse is telling us right here. These two verses are, are telling us that I can bring joy to God as I worship him. I can bring God joy as I worship him. And of course, worshiping him is more, again, than just singing a song. Worshiping him is living a life where I trust in who he is. His delight is not in the strength of the horse nor his pleasure in the legs of men. God, God doesn't, isn't thrilled by how great we can do and what we can accomplish in our own strength. God finds great joy when we realize that we have to rely upon him. It reminds me a little bit in the New Testament, and maybe you remember this, but in, in the New Testament, um, it talks about not grieving the heart of God. We can bring joy to God. Again, the big idea, singing about the character of God, genuine worship is not singing about the character of God. It's actually trusting in the character of God. Now think about this. It is not that God necessarily takes joy in hearing me singing. He may, but ultimately God takes joy when, I, when the song I sing is backed up by the life I live. When I don't just sing about his great character, but I trust it. And when I don't just sing about his great character, but I display it. Because think about this. What does it mean to trust in God's character? Ultimately for you and me, it looks like my life displays that character. That people look at me and they see the character of God in me because I'm trusting in that character. Remember, we are what we worship and our deities will become our identities. And if I'm worshiping the one true God, if I'm worshiping the good, good Father, then his identity will be reflected, yes, in my life. Will look good in my life. Worship is the in the form of trust looks good on us, and it is something to appreciate and be thankful for. So here's what I want us to do. Um, I want us to think about what it looks like again to worship God by trusting Him and by trusting Him by displaying His character. And so I want to take us to a verse in the New Testament, a passage we know really well. And think about this because. Again, Psalms 147, there are certain things that look good on the believer. They're fitting, they're becoming of us. And so you got these fruits here of the Spirit, right? We know this passage, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires and we desire to exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And let me just tell you, Psalms 147.1, the fruits of the Spirit, they look really good on you. They look really good on me as a believer. That's, it's fitting for me to display the fruits of the Spirit. And so here, here's the thought. As we go through this next week, maybe as we go through this series, I want you to take a moment right now just in the silence of your own mind, I want you to think about this question. And we're going to close with a song. We'll sing a song here together in a moment. But here, I will consciously worship God this week, loving Him and loving others by displaying. Okay, the fruits of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then there's, there's eight different expressions of this love. It's my love for God. It's my love for you. It's my love for those around me. The fruit of the Spirit is love for God, love for others. And it's expressed through what? 
joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And can each of us this morning, before we go home, can we pick one, one of those nine things or one of those eight things, however you want to look at it, and say, I will consciously worship God this week by displaying, maybe for instance, his peace. This week I am going to display his peace. Despite my circumstances, I'm not just going to sing about the peace of God. I'm going to display the peace of God. I'm going to trust him by displaying the peace of God. Or maybe it's his patience. I'm not just going to sing about God being a faithful God that I can trust, but I'm going to display in my character this week a trust that patiently waits upon God. Let's sing this closing song together. And as we sing this song, let that ruminate in your mind. Choose one of those nine things. And for the next week or throughout this series, say, I am going to choose to do this. And the reason why this came to me is I just, this week as I was thinking through this message, I thought, I want to worship God. And one of these came to mind. And I thought, I should ask us all this morning, what's the one thing we should do together?